You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up at the heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thank you, Gretchen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for uh, just how you've gifted musicians, people who can actually get up here and play instruments and lead us in worship. And um, we just pray that right now as we continue in worship that you, Holy Spirit, would do what I could never do, uh, that you would work through my own imperfections, failures, flaws, weaknesses, sins, all of those things, and that uh, ultimately, Jesus, that you would uh, minister to each heart in a unique way that stirs our hearts towards you, that changes us from the inside out by your grace and your mercy. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. This may come as a big shocker to some of you, but I was not the coolest kid growing up. Um, that's me, number 13, and, uh, that's 1994, Oak Grove Middle School. Not happy, uh, did I just hear a woo? Okay, all right, go Oak Grove. Uh, excellent, this is going well so far. Um, and so, I'm not super happy because I'm on the intramural basketball team, not the traveling team, and the reason I'm on the traveling team is because I didn't perform well enough in the tryouts, and, and, and therefore I didn't make the cut. And uh, because I didn't make the cut, I had to find a new group of friends. I'm not sure how it worked where you were at, but at the school I grew up in, jocks hang out with the jocks, cheerleaders are cheerleaders, so on and so on. And uh, so I didn't get to hang out with uh, the guys that I was used to hanging out with anymore. And so for the next five years, I would jump from group to group to group, trying to find you know my people that I could fit in with, that I could relate to, that I could be approved of. And so I went through all kinds of phases. But uh, you know, because I never had the latest gaming system, I couldn't hang out with the gamers. Uh, because I didn't have the name brand clothes, I couldn't hang out with the preps. And because I was actually a rollerblader, uh, I definitely wasn't welcomed by the skateboarders. And so. Um, you know, for years, I just kind of jumped from group to group, trying the best I could to earn the approval of others. But then in 10th grade, everything changed. Because in 10th grade, Evan Elmore wanted to be my best friend. Some of you know Evan, believe it or not, at one point, he was the coolest kid at Paragold School. He was good looking. He was strong. He was athletic. He literally got class favorite from seventh all the way through 12th grade. And when Evan became my best friend, something interesting happened. Because Evan, who was the most glorious kid, if you will, in Paragold School District, uh, because he approved of me, I no longer lived under this pressure of needing the approval of other people. 
I, I went from trying to perform in order to fit into these groups and get others to like me to instead resting in the approval of Evan because his voice mattered than any other voice. And because he affirmed me, it truly changed everything. I went from being kind of this shy, anxious, awkward, kind of lonely kid who was constantly filled with shame to being confident, to being full of hope, to feeling like truly I was worthy of love. And the reason I share that with you this morning is because as life-changing as it was for me to get the approval from Evan, imagine how much more life-changing would it be if you knew in your heart that you were approved by the creator of the universe, the most glorious being in existence who has created the coolest celebrity or the best athlete or everything you've seen, all the beautiful scenery, everything in the world has been created by this God. And imagine how your life would be different if you knew, not just in your head, but in your heart, this God approves of you. Like if you believe this, like it would free you from shame. It would free you from condemnation. It would free you from living in fear of what other people thought of you. And you see, because the enemy knows this is true, he will do whatever he can to convince you you're not good enough. He'll do whatever he can to convince you that, that you don't have what it takes. He'll, he'll try to convince you you're too sinful for God to love you or to enjoy you, especially when you're not at your best. I've been going back and reading the book uh, Abba's Child, which is a book by Brendan Manning. I read it years ago, and I'm just going back in, in the last few weeks, just reading through the highlights in that book. And Manning says something that, that stuck out to me I wanted to share with you all. He says this, Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut-level feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-worth. If you're like, where does he get that from? Well, in Romans 8, I was just reading this morning, uh, Paul says that the Holy Spirit was given to you for the purpose of, of testifying with your soul that I am God's child. I am his beloved son. I am his beloved daughter. That is what the Spirit is trying to do even right now through this preaching to convince you of the love of the Father for you. And because the enemy knows that's true, he's going to try to do whatever he can to convince you otherwise. This feeling, Brennan goes on to say, shackles many Christians in spite of wonderful spiritual experiences and the knowledge of God's word. Although they understand their position as sons and daughters of God, they are tied up in knots and bound by this terrible feeling of inferiority and chained in a deep sense of worthlessness. Put another way, if the enemy can convince you that God does not approve of you, if he can convince you that somehow you have outsinned his love or you have exhausted his mercy, then he knows it will rob you of the life and the love that you're longing for. And my guess is this morning that maybe some of you, like this is a struggle for you like it is for me, that despite your best efforts, there are still days where you feel like I'm not good enough. There are still days where you feel like, man, there is no way that God could truly love me. Despite the fact maybe that you show up here week after week after week and you read your Bible and you pray and you do all these things and you're in community, you still struggle with feelings of self-rejection. Maybe some of you are, are, are like me, like I've been in times where I can get all these compliments, but then I get one criticism and it just kind of ruins everything. You get criticized one time and, and as soon as you're criticized or rejected or alone or abandoned, you start thinking to yourself things like, that proves it, just as I thought, I am a nobody. I'm a not good enough. I'm, I, I'm not you know, worthy of love. I need to be pushed aside. I need to be forgotten. I need to be rejected. I need to be abandoned. And you see, because Jesus knows that this is the greatest threat to your spiritual life because he knows this is a temptation for all of us to believe the lie that because of our brokenness, because of our failures, because of our flaws, that we are unlovable. He gives us this parable in Luke chapter 18. 
a parable that is meant to show us how we can receive the love, the affirmation, and the approval that we are longing for, that when we experience it in Christ, it truly changes everything. And so with that, if you look with me in Luke 18, verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And I just want to stop right there and point something out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that God made him, talking about Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. What that means is that, listen... Even on your best days, the Bible is clear, your righteousness is a filthy rag before God. Like you do not measure up to a holy and just God and you never will. You never could. And that's bad news. But the good news is, is that God sent Jesus to live a perfect life. You could not live to fulfill the righteous requirement of God on your behalf. And now if you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are literally clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus at the cross was treated the way you deserve to be treated for your sins. So when you trust in him, you can now for all eternity be treated the way only Jesus deserves to be treated. Like that's the gospel. And you see in verse nine, these guys don't believe that. They don't trust in the righteousness of God. They're trusting in their own righteousness and they feel pretty good about themselves. They feel like they've whipped the big sins. They feel like they are doing pretty good. Like they've got a consistent Bible reading. They're giving, they're doing all of these great things. And now because they look and they say, my resume looks better than your resume. They literally are looking down on other people who are not as good as them. Maybe some of you have known people like this. I have been like this at times. Maybe you've been hurt by people like this, religious people, church people, that we can be at times, I know, hypercritical or judgmental. And I just want to say, like, like long before you had a problem with people like that, like Jesus had a problem with people like that. And that's why he's writing to them. That's why he's telling this story. And here's the story. Here's the parable, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, these guys could not be more opposite. A Pharisee is a very religious, rule-keeping, conservative who's going to take the country back for God. Very respected. These are are people that we often look down upon, but Pharisees in this culture had an incredible reputation. You would aspire to be someone like a Pharisee. So you have them over here, but then you have the tax collectors over here, and the tax collectors are are, their spiritual outcast at best. Tax collectors were, were the not good enough. They were the snakes who would make money off the back of their friends and families in order to pad their own pockets. I mean, you didn't get as bad as a tax collector. They're kind of the worst of the worst. They betrayed their own people and worked for the Roman government who had been oppressing the Jewish people for years. And so the tax collectors are bad people. Parents would be separated and broken, or kids would be separated from their parents because of tax collectors. People would be thrown into prison unjustly because of tax collectors. Marriages would probably be split up because of tax collectors. People would lose their homes because of tax collectors. I mean, this is a man, this tax collector, who has hurt and oppressed and betrayed a lot of people just for the purpose of making his own life better. And before we go any further, I, just as a way of making sure we're not disconnected from the reality of this text, I just want to ask you, like, do you have a tax collector in your life? Is there someone in your life who has hurt you, someone who has harmed you, someone who has sinned against you in such a way that they've not only disappointed you, but they, they've disgusted you because of their sins? If so, like that is your tax collector. 
That is the person in your life that maybe even today you're tempted to, to look down on, to shake your finger at. Someone maybe you want to pay for their sin. Someone who you might even be convinced that they must be further from God than you are. That's what we have in this story. You have a Pharisee, you have a tax collector. The Pharisee is widely respected. The tax collector is widely rejected. The Pharisee, we would look at and say, he must be close to God. The tax collector must be far from God. And therefore, if you were to put yourself in this story and you were hearing this parable for the very first time, you are confident you know where this is going. The Pharisees must be the hero. The tax collector must be the villain. And therefore, as humans, because we often believe that God is just like us and because he clearly hates what we hate and love what we love, we know in here that what's about to happen in this story is the Pharisee is about to be praised and the tax collector is about to be punished. That's what's going on in our minds. But look what happens next. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. So notice, by the way, before we go any further, on the surface, this seems like a pretty good guy. He's attending church. He's praying. He's grateful. He says, God, I thank you. He's an honest man. He's not lying. He's not stealing. He's a man of integrity. He's, an, he's not an evildoer. He's not an adulterer. He's not cheating on his wife. He's not being unfaithful. He fasts twice a week. And that wasn't even an expectation for Pharisees. They were only expected to fast once a week. But he's going above and beyond, and he gives a tenth of everything he has. So he's not robbing God of his tithes and offerings. This is a generous man. And therefore, at first glance, I look at this guy, and I'm like, that's someone I want to be a member of the crossing. Like, that's the kind of guy, like, I would want my daughter to marry someday. However, as we dig a little deeper, we discover that though this man looked perfect on the outside, he was filled with all kinds of pride on the inside. And what happens is because he has this pride, he is blind to his own sinfulness. He begins to believe that that these other people's sins must be worse than his sins, that somehow his resume and his accomplishments are impressive and have been able to earn the approval of God. And if we can be honest, there's a little bit of that in all of us. I know there's a little bit of that in me. That we can all struggle from time to time with this temptation that God's approval of me or lack thereof is dependent primarily on my performance or lack thereof. I think back to that picture of me at Oak Grove. And I didn't make the team because I didn't perform well enough. And that's just the way life works, right? I mean, it's the way it works in sports, It's the way it works in school. You don't perform well enough, you get an F, you fail. You don't perform well enough in your job, you get fired. That's the way it works in the world. And therefore, many of us are convinced that has to be the way it works with God, that if we can't perform to the standards that he has set for us, then he won't accept us. And again, because Jesus knows this is our temptation, because he knows there's a little bit of a Pharisee in all of us, that he knows that we all tend to believe that our approval depends on our performance. He is about to blow up that idea in this parable. He is about to, through this parable, crash us into our own self-righteousness, not because he hates us, but because he loves us and he wants to pull us in closer to himself. And he does all of this by pointing to the tax collector, who in verse 13, if you look back with me, It says, was at a distance, and he could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want you to get a picture of what this looks like. I think I'm going to put this on the screen for you. There's a lot of different drawings and paintings out there of this story. This is just one of them, and and I want to get your feedback on this. Like, Notice how in the front you have the Pharisee, 
you know, chest out. Uh, he's proud. He feels really good about himself. Uh, looks good, looks strong, looks confident. And then you have the tax collector in the back with his head down. And I just want to ask you, put yourself in the place of the tax collector. What do you think in this moment that he is feeling? I want to get some feedback here. We used to do this a lot at the cinema, by the way. I would ask, you know, receive feedback back. So, yeah, what do you, what do you think he's feeling? Shame. Yeah, in the first service, like 10 people said shame. It's like all at the same time. Shame. Inferiority. 100%. Rejected. Yep. He can't even look up. Like, have you ever met anybody who's so dejected, so filled with shame that literally they can't even look at you in the eyes? Or just down like this, eyes on the ground. I mean, this guy's beating his chest, within this culture was a sign of contrition and sorrow and humility. And the only thing that he can get out of his mouth is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like, I just started thinking this week, like, I wonder what happened in his life that led him to this point. Like, you think, like, I don't know, like, did he lose a kid? Does he have an illness? Did he lose his job? Like, is all of a sudden he, like, had this big house with lots of money, but no one to enjoy the stuff with because he's burned all the bridges? Like, I don't know what's happened. But for whatever reason, in this story, this man is broken. He is fully aware of just how sinful that he is. He is an absolute mess. And in his mess, he cries out for the mercy of God. And look how God responds. Look what happens next. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Hang on one minute. Jesus, I think you got this wrong. Like the, the tax collector's done nothing for you. He's done nothing but rob and steal and break up families and hurt people. This is a wicked, wicked man. And he goes home justified. But the Pharisee, who has had all of this wonderful religious service and duty to you, goes home condemned. How in the world is that possible? It seems a little bit unfair, honestly. And if you read it right, might even make you angry. How is this possible? Because look what Jesus says next in verse 14, for all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The truth is, and we have to get this today, according to Jesus, no one will swagger into the kingdom of God. Nobody will walk in and say, look at all I've done. Because in God's kingdom, the way up is down and the way down is up. If you try to win, you will lose. But if you will lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will win. And therefore, because that is true, and I hope you get this today, and this is something that God has been working in my own heart, especially over the last few weeks, is this reality that, that when it comes to getting the approval of God, you need to know that it is your neediness, not your impressiveness, that makes you right before him. I once heard Jeff Schulte say, the main thing that God needs from you is your need. I wonder if you believe that today. It's a bold statement. The, way, the main thing that God needs from you is your need. To admit that even on your best days that you still stand in 100% complete need of the mercy of God that you actually still need the mercy of God as much today as you did the first day that you cried out to him. 
The tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Rather than comparing himself to others, which is my temptation, to compare my best day to your worst day so that I can feel better about myself, rather than comparing himself to others, he compares himself to God, to a holy God. And as a result, he's completely undone. He realizes just how far short he has fallen of God's glory. In that moment, all he can do, the only thing he knows to do is to cry out for the mercy of God. And listen, that's enough. That's enough. He doesn't have to work. He doesn't have to perform. He doesn't have to go back and pay everyone that he has robbed from and stolen from. He cries out for God's mercy and immediately he is justified. God says, okay, I forgive you. You are now right in my eyes. This has been such a sobering and yet encouraging word for a recovering performance junkie like me. You know, my wife and daughter were in a play recently and if you've been to a play, you know that at the end of the play, they come out and they take a bow And on the Sunday that I went and watched, everybody stood up and gave him a standing ovation and applauded him. And I just thought to myself, like, man, like, like, I tend to live my life like I'm on a stage. Like that somehow if I can perform well enough, then I can get the affirmation and the applause that gives me some sort of significance and security that I'm longing for. And that's actually great as long as you always nail the performance. The problem is, you don't always nail the performance. At least I don't. I mean, I never feel like I get my lines just right. I never feel like I act exactly the way I need to act or that I live up to the expectations that are set for me. And as a result of that, what I am realizing, especially over the last few weeks, is that I have been living more afraid than I ever believed. Afraid of disappointing you, afraid of not living up to expectations, afraid of what people think of me, afraid of essentially being that fifth grade boy that because I didn't perform well enough, I end up setting alone. And my guess is actually this morning that I'm not alone in thinking that way. That if you could be honest, maybe at least one or two others in here would have to admit that yes, I too have been living in fear. I've been living with this anxiety, this fear of not measuring up, this fear of rejection, this fear of not being a good enough spouse, not a good enough husband or a good enough wife or a good enough parent or a good enough kid or a good enough student or a good enough friend or a good enough Christian. And as a result, the fear is choking the life out of you. It is keeping you from walking in the freedom that God has for you. And if that is where you are this morning, listen, the key is not to try harder to be better. The key, take it from me, is not to try to perform the best you can in order to prove to others you are better than you really are. But the key to experiencing the life that you are longing for is found in surrender. It's found in surrender. It's found in laying down your resume and stepping off the stage and into the mercy of a God who loves you so much that because he knew that you could never work your way into a relationship with him, that he came and worked his way to you by sending his son, Jesus, to do for you everything you could not do for yourself. Guys, the truth is today, and we have to remember this, we have to remind each other of this. If we are Christians, if you are a Christian, it is because God being rich in his mercy chose to save you and not because of your performance. 
But because of the performance of Christ, it is by God's mercy we are saved, and it is by God's mercy that we are secure from now until eternity. The verdict is in. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are, no matter what you did this week or did not do, holy and blameless and accepted in his sight. With that being said, I think there are two invitations to us from Jesus today. And the first invitation is this. If you have never done so, receive the mercy of God. Receive the mercy of God. Whether you are more like the Pharisee, which can be me, or you're more like the tax collector, no matter who you are or where you're at, we all stand in need of the mercy of God. And if you want to receive that mercy today, you don't have to try to work harder. You just simply need to confess your sins to Jesus. It's that good. Confess your sins to Jesus, and the Bible is clear that he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, it's how the whole thing starts, blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say blessed are the perfect. He doesn't say blessed are the prestigious. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. You know what that means today? If you feel like a varsity Christian, you're not in a very good place. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you're here and you feel weak, if you feel needy, if you feel poor in spirit, like you are spiritually bankrupt before God, then rather than sitting in your shame, the invitation from Jesus today is to run to him and to know that he will forgive you and he will actually use you in ways in his kingdom that are bigger and better than you could ever imagine. The Apostle Paul did more for the kingdom of God than any of us will ever do. He's the greatest missionary to ever live next to Jesus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said, I am the chief of all sinners. Like we would never hire anybody that says that. Like literally, we wouldn't. It is laughable, right? It's like like literally, that's the same as Paul getting up and saying, I am the biggest sinner in this room. How could he say that and mean it? Because... Unlike the Pharisees, Paul always compared himself to the holiness of God. And therefore, like the tax collector, he continued to cry out for the mercy of God. Rather than putting his confidence in the flesh, he put his confidence in Christ. And because he put his confidence in Christ, what did he find out whenever he took his most sinful, nasty, disgusting stuff to Jesus? What did he discover Jesus was able to do? And I want you to think about this, by the way, too. Imagine the most embarrassing stuff in your life, the grossest stuff in your life, the stuff you would never want to confess publicly or have put on one of these screens. Imagine taking that to Jesus. And and what would his response be to you today? That says a lot about your relationship with God and how you think he would respond to that. Paul said, I am the chief of all sinners. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I want to do, all the, I, I, I'm struggling with these things. And he takes it all to Jesus. And what does he discover? In Romans chapter 8, he says this, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine how different your life would be if you could live with that kind of confidence? That without a shadow of a doubt, there is nothing that I can do that will ever separate me from the love of God. No matter how bad it gets, nothing, nothing will change the fact that he loves me perfectly as I am right now. See, if you want this kind of confidence, it is not gained through performance, but it's gained through poverty through a level of humility that says my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness. The tax collector said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as a result of that pitiful prayer, the lowest man in the room was exalted in the highest place in Jesus' eyes. 
And so the first invitation for you today is if you've never done so, receive the mercy of God. And then secondly and lastly, if you've received the mercy of God, here's the invitation today, share the mercy of God. Whatever God does in you, he wants to do through you. If you have become a recipient of God's mercy, you're now called to be a participant in God's mercy to extend the mercy to others that you yourself have received. In Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees are so mad at Jesus because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's one thing to tolerate tax collectors and sinners. It's another thing to eat with them because in this culture, you eat with these people. You're saying, I want a relationship with these people. And so they're like, how could you do this? How could you be so flippant about this sin? How could you just hang out with these guys and eat with them? And Jesus' response was this. Matthew chapter 9, I did not come for the healthy, I came for the sick. And then he says that in verse 13, it's profound to me. He says, go learn what this means. I know you Pharisees love studying, you love your theology, you love your Bible studies. Go learn what this means. And then here's what he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come to call, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus says, you want to be more godly? It's not about performing all these religious tasks. It is about showing mercy to people who don't deserve mercy. And in a cancel culture like ours, where we are so quick to write people off whenever they disappoint us or don't meet our expectations. I cannot think of a practice that will demand a gospel explanation more than the practice of extending mercy to the undeserving. I recently had a chance to attend a funeral for Jimmy Lou Fisher, which Bill Clinton spoke at. And um, that was pretty neat. And, and, and whenever um, I was kind of thinking back on him speaking, I was thinking about this message this week. I started thinking about whenever he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. And there was, uh, you may not know this, but after his affair, he invited 10 pastors to come and help him process his thoughts and feelings. And one of the pastors that came was Philip Yancey. And Philip Yancey went, he later wrote uh, about that experience in Christianity today. And, and, and you can go and read it yourself. But basically what he said is, hey, Christians, we need to start extending mercy to Bill Clinton. And Christianity today, still to this day, said that, that they got more hate mail over that article than any article that's ever been written. They said Christians were absolutely outraged. Like, how dare you tell me to show mercy to someone like Bill Clinton? And, and Clinton, in response to this, said the following, and I quote, What I can't wrap my mind around is how much the evangelical world hates me. And then this next thing he says here, I feel like a lot of people probably outside the church are feeling. He said, it's hard for me to connect with people who don't know what it's like to sin. Now, don't read into what I'm saying. I am not saying what Bill Clinton did wasn't wrong. I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying there shouldn't be consequences for sin. There are consequences for sin. But what I am saying is this. If we ever get to a place where we would rather see someone pay for their sins, then we would see them forgiven of their sins. Our heart is far from God. Jesus says in Luke 7, there is a prostitute wiping Jesus' feet with her tears. It's a scandalous thing. It shouldn't really have been done. It wasn't right in that culture for a woman to touch a man like that. Jesus' disciples are a little freaked out by it. I would have been too. Like, this is making me uncomfortable. What's going on here? Is Jesus liking this a little bit too much? Should she be doing this? Jesus picks up on their kind of judgmental, hypercritical, you know, mindset. And he says to them in Luke 7, For those who have been forgiven much will love much, but if you have been forgiven little, you will love little. And so the call today is not just be more merciful. 
Go forgive people. Like, love people better. The call today is to taste the forgiveness of God yourself. To be reminded again that, that we're not comparing ourselves to one another, but to the holiness of God, and that none of us measure up to the holiness of God. To feel again afresh how broken and sinful and desperate we are for the mercy of God and then cry out for mercy and be met with that mercy and feel it again afresh. Maybe for some of you the first time. Jesus again says, those who will exalt themselves will be humbled, but for those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. The way up is down and the way down is up. And if this morning that feels beneath you, you're like, I just don't think I can do that. That feels too humbling. It feels too humiliating. I would never admit that I'm in the same place as someone like a tax collector. I'm not going to do that. Like, then look to Jesus today as the example for you. As someone who has humbled himself for you, Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, that Jesus humbled himself, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore, as a result, listen to this, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The truth is today, at one point or another, you will be brought low. One day you will be brought low. One day you will bow a knee. And you're going to bow a knee before Jesus either as your merciful Savior or as your judge. And the choice is really yours today. Do I want to humble myself on this earth, as humiliating as that might be, as scary as that might be, do I want to humble myself on earth and be exalted in the highest places in Christ for eternity? Or do I want to try to walk with a swagger? Do I want to try to continue to live in this space where I say I no longer need the mercy of God and therefore as a result of exalting yourself here, you end up being humbled in the lowest and darkest and the most humiliating place you could be for all eternity. Like that's your choice. And so today I just want to encourage you, like if you've never received the mercy of God, like receive the mercy of God. You need God's mercy. I need God's mercy. Cry out to Jesus today. Just That's a wonderful prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's enough. That's enough. And if you're here and you already recognize your need for mercy and you've received that mercy through Jesus over and over again, then extend mercy to others. Let's be a merciful people. And the way that's going to happen, the only way it's going to happen is by, again, receiving the mercy of Christ, by taking it in. And that's one of the reasons we take communion each week. It's a tangible reminder every week of the mercy of God. It's a physical reminder, the way to embody God's mercy. And so the way this works, if you're new here, even if you're not a member, you're invited to this table. Jesus loves to eat with sinners and tax collectors, broken people who just recognize their need for him. So if you recognize your need for Jesus, come. We'll have a piece of bread or we tear off, which represents the perfect life of Christ. We dip it in the juice, which represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And again, even if you're not a member, you're welcome to take this if you've trusted in Jesus. But if you've never trusted in Jesus, we encourage you, trust him today. Give your life to him today. I'll be up here in the front. Robert's here. Chris is here. There's other members in this church. We'd love to talk with you about what that looks like. Um, we're also going to have a prayer team up here. I know it's a, a relatively new thing, but the prayer team exists 
uh, for you to respond and to receive prayer. Maybe something that was said today, the Spirit's going to work in your life, and you're like, man, I just, this is an area I need to believe this more. I want to step into this in a different way. Or maybe you want physical healing for something, or you want uh, just, there's a need in your life, whatever it is. We'll have people up here ready to pray for you, but would encourage you. Um, come forward, receive communion, receive prayer if you want that. Come talk to one of the ministers if you want to talk with us, and we'd love to help you with next steps. With that said, I'm going to invite our communion team to go ahead and come forward, and those who are going to be praying at the band wheel, let's come forward. And then I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We'll pray together. And then when you're ready, you can take communion or respond however the Spirit prompts you. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to accomplish for us what we could not accomplish ourselves. Father, we stop and recognize that as scandalous and undeserved as it is that you actually, in the places that we often hate ourselves the most, you move towards us. We acknowledge that your mercy runs downhill. And so I pray that you would give us a proper view of ourself in light of your holiness, that we would see ourselves as you see us, yes, as sinners, yes, as those who are, have not fully arrived, but also for those of us who have trusted in you as righteous ones, who are loved perfectly as we are right now. I pray for those who maybe are, are in the room, God, that the Pharisees, that you would soften our hearts, for the tax collectors, that you would lift our eyes off of our own brokenness and onto the cross. We would be reminded if there was nothing that we could do to outrun your mercy, to outrun your grace. And I pray that as a result of that, that rather than sitting in our own shame or condemnation or trying to atone for our own sins by beating ourselves up, that we would go to you, Jesus, and trust that you have done everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. Would you please make us a merciful people? That we'd be merciful with ourselves, merciful with our spouses, our kids, our coworkers, our friends, those we work for, or those who work for us, wherever we are. And I pray that as a result of the mercy that we extend to others, that people would they would demand a gospel explanation and we'd be able to point them ultimately to the mercy that we've received in you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.